You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning. Good morning, Redemption. Um, that was a wonderful introduction. I don't feel like I usually get intros. Um, Tis the season. Um, it is, I, for me, I feel like it's the, the craziest time of year um, right now. I don't know uh, if other people are feeling this. I might be projecting. If I'm projecting, I'll um, certainly unpack it in therapy on Wednesday. But uh, I think I think that that's what a lot of us are feeling right now. I imagine the like duck on the water, and they're like calm, and their feet are like underneath. I don't know if I look calm, but I I feel like the feet under the water right now. And earlier, right before service, I was talking to Isaac in the back, and. We both express this desire for simplicity in this season. That's my heart, and that's certainly not how I just described I'm feeling. I know that's the heart he says he has for this season. Um, And I think that's the heart that we as a church have for one another. So before I jump in this morning to quiet my um, crazy little duck feet, um, I'm going to have us all enter into just a moment of silence and stillness. As the lights are dim, let us bow our heads and let us close our eyes. Let us become mindful of our bodies right now that are filling up space of our feet and our shoes all the way up to our stomachs as they expand and contract, expand with breath and exhale, as we take note of our shoulders and our neck and our jaw, and we breathe out and we release God, let us be mindful of you this morning. There's a reality that you're present in this space with us here. Attune us to that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So... As Jordan said, I am a pre-K teacher. That's what I do in my normal day-to-day 
life. I'm a pre-K four teacher, so I teach four-year-olds. So truly, the majority of my waking hours are spent with four-year-olds. Um, so every day, I get like a little kookier, like a little bit weirder. Uh, Kendrick will say it. He'll be like, yeah, she's regressed. <laughs> you know? Um, and so because of that, though, the Christmas season is like integral to my day-to-day life. Um, children do not let you forget that Christmas is coming. They do not let you forget that. Um, there's this, I just love this little story. Um, about a week ago at school, I'm watching on the playground, I'm actually watching a pre-K three class, so the three-year-olds. And in this class is actually Zoe, Brandon, our head pastor's daughter. And Zoe and like three or four other three-year-olds are running around the playground in like a line, like a line of ducks just running together. And they're screaming. They're like, the baby is coming. The baby is coming. We have to get to Bethlehem. The baby is coming. And that's like the whole game that they're playing is like, the baby is coming. Everybody gather. We must go. And then at some point, one of the girls picks up like a tiny stick and is holding it. And they're like, the baby's here. And they're running with the baby, but then they're three, so they trip, and the, they fall, and she's like, the baby fell, and you know, like that is what I'm around on a day-to-day basis, like Christmas is here, and I get to see it, and that's, it's a real privilege, because um, it's easy, I think, sometimes to just move on past it, but I have constant reminders around me, and so everything we do during my day, really since Thanksgiving, is revolving around Christmas, our coloring sheets are Christmas. Like I've decorated our, our classroom, has Christmas decor. Um, the songs that we're singing are Christmas songs. The candles I burn are, are Christmas like scented and they have snowflakes on them. Right at rest time, I play these instrumental Christmas like hymns. I'm, I'm telling the nativity story at my story time with like little figurines. When you're surrounded by children, you do not get to ignore the birth of Christ. You are immersed in it. And so while all this is happening, um, these four-year-olds, they will actually kind of ask these very profound questions, theologically speaking. And um, as we're in class and everything that we're doing is Christmas, like I've had a child, you know, be like, is it Christmas? And I'm like, well, no, it's not Christmas. It's not Christmas right now. They're like, then what's all this about? Like, if it's not Christmas. And so the very cynical part of me wants to be like, have you heard of Christmas creep? Like, (laughs) you know, consumerism in America has caused, you know, but I don't do that. Um, I will not destroy the magic that's in these children. So I don't do that. Instead, right, we have this conversation about like how in reality, all of this stuff is like orienting our hearts and our minds about this arrival of Christ, right? So we're all like actively doing things to prepare for the fact that something is going to happen. So by doing something now, we're thinking about the thing that's going to happen, but also we have to wait and we have to be still. And I'm like, you know, Rosie, that's why I brought the snow globe (laughs) because of that, and so I think that's just one of these like great paradoxes of the Christian life. Certainly a great paradox of this Advent season. 
There is preparation and there's expectation and anticipation. There's future orientation, but there's also like waiting and stillness and being like right here, being right here. And every morning um, at school, we have school-wide prayers, and one of the deans comes out, and they'll give like a little word um, before we start our prayers. And last week, one of the deans came out, and she had her students recite a poem that they've been memorizing. And the poem is A Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the last stanza of the poem is, Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Learn to labor and to wait. And I think that is the Christian life. That's integral to this Advent season. We are learning and orienting ourselves to labor, but we're also doing it as we wait. And we're learning to do both very well. The text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40. Um, We'll look at it together. And it speaks to this very nature of looking forward, of preparation, of laboring while waiting. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 40. Before I jump into the text, I... Uh, if you've heard me preach, I'm a, I love an Old Testament little, you know, historical context. I'm an Old Testament nerd, so I'm going to give a little bit before we jump in. Isaiah 40, this chapter, it opens up a whole new section of Isaiah. So up until now, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, what the prophet Isaiah has been doing is proclaiming judgment on Judah. Right? They were not faithful covenant partners with God, and Isaiah is pointing that out. And saying, because of this, there will be consequences for that. Right? Isaiah 1 through 39 is pointing to the fact that there will be an exile. The nation will be destroyed, taken over by an enemy nation, and you will all be pushed out, living in exile from your promised land. Those who remain in that land, you will be under your conqueror's reign. Right? That is the first part of Isaiah. Chapter 40 is a complete Completely different message now. Chapter 40 transitions into this section about hope. Um, Isaiah is now speaking about the restoration of that exact Judean community. So this first section is judgment. There will be consequences. And now we're in a space that's like, but after, there will be restoration. There will be hope. And so Zach mentioned, if you're here and heard this um, last week, he mentioned this term like second Isaiah or deutero Isaiah. That term is specifically speaking about who is writing Isaiah. And so there's this two ideas. If it's the same person is writing 1 through 39 as 40, that means that that person is writing about judgment. And then they're saying in the future... In a future time, there will be a people who that land will be restored for. The other option is, if there's two authors here, maybe there's an author who's writing with like the same intent as Isaiah, a Deutero, a second Isaiah, then they're writing at another place in time, and they are saying, this has already happened to you, you've been in the exile, now in present day, you are about to be restored. 
To be honest, that's really not important for this message. I just like to do a little bit of fun teaching, if you think it's fun. But what's really important here is the fact that we're speaking, at this point in time, Scripture is speaking to a community that is in exile, an exilic community. They have already gone through that judgment from 1 through 39 in Isaiah. Now it is a future time, and that's what these verses are speaking to. Okay? So, these people are a people of Advent, right? These people are people who are quite literally waiting on the Lord's intervention to break through into their reality. They are waiting for God to come, for God to appear in their darkness. These people in this text that are being spoken to are an Advent people. Um, Let's hear what Isaiah has to say about these people. Verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, these first two verses, God says, comfort my people, Comfort my people who have been in exile, who have gone through trials and turmoil, and tell them it's over. Right? The warfare has ended. Scripture says the warfare has ended. It is final. It is concrete language that indicates this total conclusion of an era. This era has ended. But then we ask the question, well, what's to come? This thing's over. So now what? Let's look at verse 3. Let's keep reading. Verse 3 says, The voice of one calling out, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Right? So God says the warfare has ended. So now what? Here's our answer. So when, when we see this, for these long exiled Israelites, what they first see in this is a promise of a homecoming. This says, you will get to go home. This passage is actually a theme played earlier in Isaiah 35, where the prophet, who is talking about the fact that there will be judgment, says, at one point in time, there will be restoration. And he describes that restoration as a highway of holiness that is free from lions and other beasts, right? So it is a path that's going to open up for them that will be free from threat or danger. So these Israelites have like they are aware that that's what that restoration is going to look like and now they hear clear the way of the lord in the wilderness make straight in the desert a highway for our god they say oh we're gonna be able to go home but then the metaphor actually resonates with like a second meaning too because whenever this a king is coming to town this a herald right this official messenger this voice of one calling out was sent ahead to announce this impending arrival of like a very important person. Like to make sure that that city who is going to receive this very important person is going to like do the most, roll out the red carpet, prepare the way because this big deal is coming. 
So, so to the Israelite ear, this voice of one calling to prepare the way in the wilderness means not only that they're going to go home, but also that the Lord himself is on the way. So verses one and two, comfort my people. The warfare has ended, but now what? What's this new era going to be? Verse three answers that saying, well, this new era is that God is going to be here. God is coming. We're clearing the way in the wilderness because the Lord is coming. We're making a highway in the desert because the Lord is coming. Warfare is over, right? That's done. It's complete. God is on the way. How exciting. But also, God isn't here yet, right? These verses are very indicative of the fact that God's not here yet. God is on the way. God is coming. You're done with this. And God's coming. And now you sit in the middle. Now you sit in the middle. Right? I say that Isaiah 40 is speaking to a people right, of Advent because they're in darkness. They're waiting. They're longing. They're expecting this arrival of God to burst onto the scene. That's precisely the spirit of Advent. Right? This era has closed. We are waiting for the, revi- the arrival of God into our world. That's where we find the actual audience of this text. It's where we find ourselves in Advent. So clear the way because the Lord is coming. Make the highway in the desert straight because the Lord is coming. What else? Let's keep reading verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the uneven ground become plain. The rugged terrain, make it a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Right? These two verses are like any, anything that's going to slow down the Lord from coming. Let's get rid of it. A mountain, lower it. A valley, raise it up. Is it rough over there? Let's flatten it out. Right? Like, let's make this way God is coming. Right? This, this section is where, like, I hear the pre kers yelling, like, the baby is coming, the baby is coming, and they're running around the playground. Like, that is what I see here. And it's like, get ready, get ready. How exciting. Verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Right? The people are indeed grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Right? This is like this way of saying the word of God is good. The Lord's word is good. There is assurance in this promise of God's arrival. Humans are flippant and mortal and fleeting, but the word of God, this promise that God's on his way, it's eternal and it is constant and it is trustworthy, right? The author here is like this promise of God, you can count on it. You can count on it. God's word is good. Verse 9, he doubles down on that promise. He says even more explicitly that God is on his way. Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, Zion. 
messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully. Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Right? There's this command of like, you can count on the fact that God is coming because God's word is good. So proclaim it. Get excited. Spread the news. And now verse 10 and 11. These are our last two verses we moved through this morning. Um, this is when we now get a glimpse into who it is that's coming. We know the Lord is coming. Who's the Lord? Verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. So verse 10, I think, sounds like a very familiar God to the Israelites. Very familiar. A God of power. A God of might. Now, verse 11 shows this paradoxical picture of the nature of God. God's coming with might, with a ruling arm. And the God is also coming, verse 11, like a shepherd. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in the fold of his robe. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Right, so verse 10 tells, tells us that God who is on the way, that's a God with might. It's a strong God. However, verse 11 then starkly turns and is like, yes, but also that God who will come with might will also come like a shepherd. Right? What kind of shepherd? A shepherd who is actively tending his flock. A shepherd who in his arms will like gather the lambs. A shepherd who will carry those lambs in his own robe. I love that picture because there are children at school who they take their clothes and they put like acorns and sticks and rocks and like their most precious belongings, but also they use their shirt to carry it or their little like dress to carry it because they can't get enough of them also. And I think that's the picture here. It's like this most precious thing, but also the like too much to carry. There's too many. He just wants to carry them all. A shepherd who will gently lead these nursing ewes. I titled this sermon this morning, The Paradoxical Christian Life. And I firstly did that because I knew that most of what I would spend this morning talking about is like this paradoxical experience in Advent of waiting and preparing, right, of learning to labor as we wait, right, that, that um, experience of Advent, that experience that we see the people um, in Isaiah experiencing. I secondly titled it that, however, because what I want to finish this morning with is this um, reality that the paradoxical season of Advent actually culminates in an even greater paradox that is the incarnation. So I want to finish this morning by presenting one final paradox that this incarnation really witnesses to. Um, and like, like a good Protestant preacher, I looked up the definition of paradox. <laughs> and it is... 
a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So it is seemingly absurd and contradictory, but is well-founded and true. The incarnation tells us that um, the God of the universe has condescended. Okay, this is in Philippians 2. This is a very popular verse to, to preach from. It says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Right? God condescended. Right? God lowered. God self. I think that we know this idea of the incarnation pretty well. But I think that there is another side of that coin in that God took the form that he came in and he elevated it. Okay, stay with me here. Let me let me explain myself. So we've spent this morning going through a text that proclaims that the Lord is coming. We've spent this morning going through texts like hyping ourselves up, like God is coming. God's going to break into this world. There is excitement. There is energy, right? Verses that talk about rolling out this red carpet, like getting ready. The most honored guest of all time is coming, right? We know that whatever form God takes in his arrival, it will be great. And we know that because of how much preparation we have put into it right? Like, think about our own lives, like the amount of preparation and waiting and anticipation that we have about something is indicative of the greatness of that thing that is to come, right? You're not laboring and preparing and waiting year after year after year over something that isn't a big deal, right? My pre-kers are not like geeking out and full of energy and losing their minds because I'm going to like read them a book, Like, they're not. They're doing it because something grand and special and spectacular is going to happen in their lives. Right? How many of us have um, guests coming over for Christmas? The amount of preparation and work and labor and things that you do to prepare for the arrival of someone is indicative of the importance of that person in your life. How special they are. How often do they ever come? Right, The amount of work, the amount of anticipation, the amount of preparation that we put into something is dependent upon how special or how important, how big of a deal the one that is to come is. You see what I'm saying? So like the fact that the Israelites were called into a season of preparation, of waiting, of anticipation, it tells us that whoever is coming is worthy of the hype. Whatever form God comes in, it is worthy of rolling out the red carpet, of pulling out all of the stops. And so when you hear this, what you think God will be embodied in flesh as, what you think God will break into the world as, is this physical manifestation of greatness. Right? We, we think that would look like success, power, 
We think it looks like influence and status and notoriety based on the amount of preparation and excitement and anticipation that scripture is calling us to have and are waiting for God. Based on that, God incarnate should blow the doors off this world. And yet, how does God break into this world? How does God arrive? God arrives as a baby The God of the universe, who we have waited and anticipated and prepared and longed for, the most honored guest that we've raised the valleys for, we've lowered the mountains for, we've made a highway in the desert for, the most honored guest is an infant, is the smallest, is the meekest, is the most dependent form of a human, I think the paradox of the incarnation is teaching us that what is worthy of all of the hype, it is that which is the smallest. What is worthy of the red carpet, it is that which is the most fragile. What is worthy of shouting from the hilltops over, it is that which in its essence is the most humble, physical being. I believe that the incarnation teaches us not only that God came down, but I I believe that it teaches us that God has elevated in greatness and importance and in priority the least of this world. God broke into this world with might, with a ruling arm, and, and yet he also broke in as a baby. I pray that this Advent season can be a time that we reorient our minds to this paradoxical incarnation, that we see God in the smallest and the weakest and the most dependent and the humble and the poor and the lowly and the meek, right? because that is the form that God chose to take. And I think there's something important for us there. I think that we are taught here that there's robustness and simplicity. I think we're taught here that there is greatness and like the least. Um, I'm going to close here with um, a prayer, but I'm going to do it in the form of a sonnet um, by Malcolm Geit. Um, So we do uh, some faculty discussions at school, and they present us with beautiful material that we get to read as teachers that I would never come across without it. And this is a sonnet that they presented to us. Um, And so as I start reading this band, um, you can come up. As I read this, I want you all to like listen for the paradoxes here in this poem. I think there's something that poetry does that stirs a feeling in us that knowledge cannot. So as I'm reading this, open yourself up to hear that paradox of greatness, of power, of might, and of fragility, and of smallness, and of tenderness, okay? Listen to the words and how they coexist like in cohesion with each other, and how the greatness can help redefine our view of the smallness. All right, let this poem bless you all today. Redemption, let's pray. 
thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.